Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest edition of the LFC Red Poets Podcast. I'm your host, Les Lawson, and tonight, as usual, I'm joined by Tom Keegan and Pete Warburton. Tonight, we start off on a sombre note. We were all shocked and devastated by the news that Dan Kay had passed away suddenly over the weekend. Dan was a nice man. He was pivotal in supporting the campaign for justice and was just an all-round nice guy. He was a massive Liverpool supporter who travelled home and away to watch the Reds. And those of us who had the pleasure to know him knew he was a diamond. I had the pleasure of knowing Dan for a number of years. I met him during my time at LFC TV and we did a number of shows together and also a couple of quizzes. We also loved our chats about cricket. And when I got the news on Monday, I just I just felt like I'd been hit by a sledgehammer. I couldn't believe it. And all I can say is, you'll be missed by so many, Dan. And all I can say is, condolences to you, to your many, many friends and your family. And you'll never walk alone and you'll never be forgotten. So... And so we'll now move on to uh, talk about the game at the weekend against Brentford. So team selection was a bit of a shock, Pete, when we seen the, the, the four forwards were playing and no Harvey Elliott and Jordan Henderson was on the bench. So what did you reckon to the team news, Pete? It was a surprise when we heard the team. We always look out for the team an hour before kickoff, And with a few eyebrows raised and we, I think, my lad jokingly said, we're going for like a one-two-six formation here. Um, but it worked well. I mean, I, I, as with the other previous games, the, the last two or three home games, we started off really well. Um, there was some nice interpassing. There was there was a lot of movement between the players and, and they looked good. And it, it was just the usual. There was just not necessarily a lack of sharpness, but you, you could see from Brentford, they were really... Once they lost possession of the ball, they, they were getting back into two banks and it was making it difficult for us. <clears throat> but um, that first half, I thought we played really well. Second half, maybe not so much. But at the same token, I think we limited Brentford to one shot on targets. Whereas we struggled against Fulham um, on set pieces, we really played well. I thought the two centre-backs had excellent games. I think that was probably Virgil's best game for a long time. Canate loves a battle. He had a battle with Tony this time. Um, and the pair of them were slugging it out and they enjoyed it between them. Um, into midfield. I don't, I don't know. Just Gakpo was showing some really nice touches when he was dropping back into midfield. Um, Nunes, once again, you, you know, you can level. He, he maybe should have scored, but. He's always there. He's always offering himself Nunes and he's always creating problems for the defenders. Um, and Diaz showed some glimpses. glimpses. He wasn't possibly as as um, as good as he was against Fulham and, and, and stuff. But he, when he gets the ball, he has the crowd on the, you know, on the edge of the seat. You think something's going to happen with Diaz. And I was pleased also with Alisson as well. He only, as I say, had one shot to save. Um but I thought his distribution was good and he and he was coming out to crosses and he was making punches and he was, if not commanding his area, he, was, he looked really safe. Um, 
Whereas the Fulham game, we were always a little bit wary that they might nick one. But um, obviously Mo again, getting his 100th goal at Anfield. Um, just, you know, Mo is Mo, isn't he? He gives you everything every game and the effort was always there. But I think overall, if it, if it was to pick a man of the match, I think I'd go with Virgil. I thought he had an outstanding game at the, in defence. He still has that language style where you think he's going to get caught in possession or he's going to give a poor pass away. But I thought he really stepped up to it against Brentford because the two lads up front, Tony and Mbemu, I like the pair of them. I'm not saying the Liverpool players by any means, but they're very, very physical. And I was a little bit surprised at Brent's tactics as well. Um, the, you know, the, the time wasting the employed. I know a lot of away teams do it to kill the atmosphere. But I was just a little bit surprised and disappointed because when they play at their patch down in London, they take anyone on. They're a really good, energetic side. Yeah, so all in all, obviously pleased with the three points and pleased with some of the performances. Some, you know, improvements are showing there. Curtis Jones, another good game as well. Tom, what was yeah. it? You couldn't disagree with anything Peter said there. If you you know when you play Brent Brentford that you're in for a battle, don't you? You know, Tony, Tony gets amongst you and he and he causes problems with the defenders. He he tries to bully defenders. He's big, he's strong, he's very difficult to man mark. But I thought Virgil done really well and can I say with him. I thought I thought he were I thought he they tried to break very, very quickly, Brentford. And I think the the one of them teams that when they do break they break very fast with lots of players. And I, I think, as Pete said, I think I think at the back, I thought him, Canate and Virgil held them well. And I, I, I think overall, it was it was never a classic. I think I think it's it, it's been similar for, for more or less. We, we You could sort of play, go back and play the same sort of tape between us for the last three or four weeks. It's been more or less... You know, the same, we're not really playing, we're playing well, either we start well and we're finishing quietly and poorly, or we start slowly and then and then we, we start like fast and then it's it's been a strange old season this. I, I, I'm trying to think back to, to when, looking back to when we've, you know, it, it's been like this. But I think now we're at the stage where I'm not even bothered about the performances anymore, Les. I'm just bothered about trying to win and getting getting to a point where we can, you know, like put ourselves in with a chance at the Champions League. But like every game, we just seem to be digging out the results. I thought I thought Trent again to, I, I was 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 excellent again as always. I thought Curtis did all right. He done he done well. But I think we take we've got to factor in with Curtis is he's twenty one, and like he, and he's old on his own and and doing all right. So o- overall, I'm not happy with the performance, but really happy with the three points. And as Peter said, Mo, what can you say about Mo? He's just just on another another level at the moment, isn't he? He's just total class. But my man of the match would have been Virgil. I thought the header across was fantastic. For, for, for Mo's goal. That's it, really. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with a lot of what you both said there. One name I'd like to throw in who I thought, you know, was one of his better performances of the season, really, was Fabinho. 
I thought that he, he, he did his job well. I still have doubts about his mobility, but he did he did a lot better in the job that I want to see him doing than he has done you know, for, for the majority of the season. I totally agree with what you said about Virgil. I thought he was very, very good. Trent, again, was very, very good. And I thought, I thought Curtis was very good as well. Tom, to be fair, I thought that, you know, he was, he was very consistent throughout the game. He, he worked his socks off. He, he kept hold of the ball well. He was trying to create. So I was, I was pleased with Curtis again. I thought he was, he was doing more of what I want to see him doing. Um, and then for me, I slightly disagree on your man of the match. I thought Mo was man of the match. I thought his his work rate and his effort was second to none. And I did just give him man of the match just ahead of Virgil. But I thought Virgil was excellent. And Tony and Berno, they're a right handful as a pair. And I thought that defensively, we handled him really well. I thought that, you know, to, to come away with a, another 1-0 victory, in many ways, it'll give the team a lot more confidence than it would have done maybe if they'd have gone in and won maybe 4-0. Because it's showing them now that if they were together as a team and they, you know, they get a goal ahead, they can now hold on to the lead because that's that's twice they've done that now, you know, in a week and two home games. And they were, they were two difficult home games against teams that make it difficult for you, the big physical teams who give very, very little away. And I, you know, I was I was really happy coming out of that game on on uh, on Saturday with the three points. It kept the pressure on the the teams above us and it looks as though it, it could be three important points, you know, as the um as the season goes on when the when the final whistle blows on the final day of the season, who knows where where we'll end up in the league because of those two one nil victories. So like you, Tom, now, for me, totally agree with what you said. It's all about the results now. And if you can get a good result and a good performance, then all the better. But it's all about now getting the three wins from our three remaining games. Take that confidence into next season and just keep our fingers crossed that it just, just might be enough to sort of sneak us into into fourth place in what would be, you know, the most unexpected, I think, Champions League qualification in the year. One one thing I'd like to ask you, Pete, first of all, I'd like to ask you, you mentioned about Mbeno there and mm. how, you, how you thought maybe he wasn't like a Liverpool type player. And I was, I was watching his performance and I've watched him a few times over the past few seasons, to be fair. And I just wondered what you thought about him possibly being I saw a rough diamond in the mould of Sadio Mane that, that possibly if he did sign for Liverpool, that Jürgen could polish and get him into the, not saying to the to the level that Sadio Mane reached, but but very, very close. Has he got a lot of the same attributes as Sadio, I think? Yeah, he has. Um, I was watching him, like obviously watching the match, but I was watching him in, he, he, a bit like Sadio, he, he's like the first line of defence for Brentford. He closes down well. Both him and Tony work very hard. Um, when I was saying probably not in the Liverpool mould, out of the two, probably Ivan Tony, he's more of a target man and we don't sort of play to that. We've, we've got a little bit of that now with Nunes where we've got an outfall if he's on the pitch. 
but generally um you, you wouldn't see the likes of Ivan Tony as as good a player as he is. I mean he was he started as I remember at Peterborough and I think Brentford took a chance on him and they've they've really you know got a lot out of the lad. So you know he could be due for a big move you don't know. Um but yeah that and Bamu he he works he I mean he has his socks halfway down his calf anyway but he works his socks off. And he is like the first line of defence. He's always closing down and he's rushed, trying to rush defenders and midfield players into, into early passes and that. So, yeah, it's a good shout that he could well be that type of, you know, that type of Mane player who... I think Mane was probably a better player at Southampton when we got in the nears of Brentford. But I know what you mean by that. He's, I don't think he's an out-and-out goal scorer as such, but he's certainly got talent there and he could be nurtured. And just the point you made, and I'm coming off a bit about Fabinho improving. Do you think that's because he's got some legs now in the midfield next to him in Kersis? You think that it, it seems to have coincided with Kersis Jones coming in, doesn't it? You know, I his, his improvement. I don't know, to be honest, Pete, because Fabinho hadn't really impressed me in, in, in a few of the games that he played since Kersis has come back in. That was, as I said, that was probably his best game. Um, as you know, in some of the other games, you know, he's still got go, let people go past him too too easily. And I'm still doubting that he's got really the legs that we need for if he's going to play consistently as our number six, so to speak. I would still question whether he has got the legs that we need in the new system. Mm. Um, so, you know, there's three games to go, you know, I'll, you know, we're making a decision then when we see him, you know, in the next three games, presuming he plays in them. But I'm still, I'm still not convinced that that's the the rebirth of Fabinho. Let us say. I mean, I hope it is because he's a player who's done really well for Liverpool in the past, but he hasn't really now. For I would say for the majority of this season and part of last season, so I. I I st- I'm still not convinced. Just let's put it that way. I don't know what Tom thinks about that. Yeah, I, 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 I'd agree with Peter. I think, um, I think the reason why Curtis, what Curtis does, is he he keeps the ball really well. He moves and he's qu- he's deceptively quick for somebody you know, like in the, in that role. And I think you know, Les, when you were talking about earlier in the season when we had we we had Thiago or Elliot or we had um, Anderson and we had. Fabinho, whoever was in with Fabinho at the time, sent midfielders isolated Liverpool. And so, because we had no pace at all whatsoever in the midfield, players just were running through at will, weren't they? Now, you've got Trent, who's in there, and he's stretching players. He's taking midfield players with him. It's the same with Curtis. He's taking players with him. So Fabinho's got that little bit more time. He's probably he's probably not playing any more different than what he played early in the season. The only difference now is that we've got somebody who's then diverting the other midfielders away from him. So he's he's got more time on the ball. And I think I think the answer to the question is I'm I'm not so sure Liverpool will let him go. I think there's an awful lot of players. That are going to go before before him, and I think he's possibly one that they, they they will keep. And I think with the better quality players that we get in them position, I think it will it will improve his game as a six. 
as a six, we you don't really if you're going to play him as a deeper six, he's not going to be running all over the pitch, is he? Doing you know? No, like, but he's got, to get, he's got to get from side to side, though, hasn't he? And well, even so, you would expect him to be able to get, you know, like that but cover. That, that's where I think that's where the thing is like a leg sort of exposes a little bit and lets him down. Um, but I never sort of said that, you know, I think he'd be sold. What I said was, yeah. if he's going to be, I don't see, if he's going to be a squad player as a six and he's going to come in and play maybe one game in three, one game in four, because you've got a more mobile six, like say a Mascarano type as a six, then that's fair enough. But then if, if the other side of things, Fab is going to play, say, every four out of five games as a six, then that's where I would tend to worry that in that system, we will eventually get found out a little bit because he will continue to get exposed because of lack of legs. But time will tell on that. It could be, as you said, that we get better quality midfielders in in the summer and that the whole team then works better and he doesn't become as exposed. And it could be he was getting exposed because Liverpool weren't, weren't dominating the ball as much as they had done in the past. So when opposition were getting the ball and pinching it off us, they were just running them, running at him and he had no protection. But as I say, things will evolve over the next sort of few months. But for me, I would still like Liverpool to sign a specialist number six. It was more mobile than fab. And then, then obviously then, Whatever happens then, when that player comes in, if Fab decides he wants to go or he's, you know, he's prepared to say as a squad player, you know, that's then down to him and the club. But that's just my view on how things lie with Fab. What do you think of that, Pete? Well, I was just thinking, you know, we're talking about new names and the like. But one of the one of the biggest misses we've had the last few weeks is Stefan Bacchetti's being out. You know, he's going to come back fresh next season. Um, obviously, Kate is going. Um, we'll have to see about Thiago. I don't know his fitness. You know his fitness levels. I'm not saying get rid of the midfield wholesale, but Alex Oxley Chamberlain's going to go. Mello's going to go, even though we haven't even seen him. Um, and Naby Case is going to go. So there's there's two possibly. Well, there's three possibly four with James Milner going as well. And there's going to be a few spaces there in that midfield. So it's going to be interesting in the summer. It's not just going to be one or two. I think there's going to be three or four midfielders coming in. Either that or, you know, they're going to maybe promote one from the academy as well. Um, but, yeah, I think I think Stefan Bacchap has, has been a big miss the last few games. But, I, you know, I've sort of contradicted myself by saying this now because he was in the side when Fabinho wasn't playing so well. So he did have legs next to him. So it's it's either or, to be honest. I, I just wondered if that was, you know, that was his the upturn in his form has been held that he's had a steady partner in in Curtis Jones in the midfield. What Tom? I'll come to you next on this one. Just yeah. changing the subject slightly, but still on the game at the weekend. What did you think of the performance of Anthony Taylor? Oh, do you know he, he, he's a strange referee, isn't he? He's he, he's a he, he's another. Do you know what? I, 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 overall of them, I, 
he's supposed to be one of the better ones. I didn't think he was. I didn't think he was. I thought. Do you know what I thought? He was bland ref as as a referee. I neither thought he was good, but I didn't think he was awful. Do you know what I mean? He's fussy. He really is fussy. Every time they hit the hit the floor, he blew off for a foul. You know, he, he, sometimes you don't. You, you need to be serious as a referee, don't you? You can see when people are just hitting the floor. I've never seen Tony hit the floor for for such a big, powerful centre forward. I've never seen him on the floor so much in a match. So I, I wasn't really, no, I wasn't really impressed with Taylor overall. Pete, I thought I. I'm not even going to be as kind as Tom was. I thought he was awful. He, to me, I mean, there was a couple of times he had the whistle to his mouth before before they made a tackle. And Brentford were playing on that because I think Brentford's, <clears throat> Brentford were hoping that their way of, you know, that they were going to hurt us was on set pieces. And any time they got like, you know, the last third of the pitch, like Tom says, the likes of Tony was going down at will, but I don't know, it's just a real... I just thought they had the shockers, to be honest, Taylor. And it's like Tom said, he's supposed to be one of our best referees. And I don't know, it's just... Some of the decisions are scratching my head, to be honest. And and then when he did give us a free kick, you could tell how the rest of the crowd felt, because it was just ironic cheers, because he'd actually given something to us. And I really thought, I think, wasn't it something like 19 fouls given against Liverpool, which is like the worst we've had against us or something? And I don't remember there being a really bad foul in the game. They were, like Tom said, they were niggles. But he was blowing up. He, he wasn't... He, he spoiled the game in, in my eyes. I, I think it could have been a more attractive game because, as I say, Brentford liked to play football. But it was just stop-start all the time. And, you know, they were reverting to a bit of time-wasting, which, I mean, it was ironic again that he, he, he booted Ali. The time-wasting when, when they were... They were wasting time, you know, all the time. Oh, I, I couldn't, I just couldn't get my head around it. And, you know, as I say, I do, I do think, as a spectacle, he made the game very ordinary. He, he spoke the game in my eyes. I totally agree with everything you said there, Pete. Fussy is a word that you use. Inept is another word that you use. And this is somebody who, as you've both rightly said, is regarded as one of the two best referees in the Premier League. And I just thought his, his performance was abysmal, absolutely abysmal. In fact, people were saying by, by us that they, they actually expected him to sort of carry on here until Brentford had equalised. That's how bad it was. He gave, a, he gave a free kick in the first half when Virgil towered and won a header. Mm. And everybody looked at it and shook their head. He booked Allison for time wasting. He booked he booked Ibu for supposedly kicking the ball away when Ibu had made contact with the ball as he was given the free kick against another Liverpool player. You know, with a multi-ball system, then you know you're not really time wasting because another ball comes on right away. I just thought his whole handling of the game was absolutely appalling, and I've seen some. Bad refereeing performances at Anfield this season, but that was on par with as bad as anything they've seen. Mm-hmm. And it shocked me because, as I say, he is, he is now regarded as one of the, the, the two best referees in the Premier League. He went to the World Cup representing the Premier League referees at the World Cup. 
And to be fair, I thought that when I've seen him referee other games this season, and to be fair, last season, I thought he'd refereed them really well. And, you know, he was one of those referees. So, well, you know, I know he's a man, but to be to be honest with you, he's now improved as a referee. But on, on, on Saturday, I just thought he was abysmal, absolutely abysmal. And it'll be interesting to see who we get to referee our game on Monday. Um, and then let's analyse him. But I'm come to, going to come to you next first on this one, Tom. Just before we finish off on the on the Brentford game, because I'm sure you've got your views on this. In that, you know, the Liverpool fans have been criticised for the reaction to the to the playing of the national anthem before the game. I just wondered what your what your view was on it. I just think it's so totally ironic, isn't it? At a time when Liverpool are getting criticised for that, and you know, like Everton fans booed it, the Everton fans booed it, and I believe even some Tramway fans booed it. Apparently, yeah, yeah. so and like, yeah, you think it was Liverpool is the only club in 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 the in the, in the land who, who booed the national anthem. It was a stupid one, really, wasn't it? Even before the club. I, I, I had that put this out on Twitter the other day. I, I thought the club were in a no-win situation. It was a directive, apparently, from, from the FA that they had to follow. They were advised to do it. But I suppose it's like that. If you're advised, what you know, in what, what capacity... It, what what capacity do you, does it be, have to be... If if you if you refuse to do it, you know what I mean. We probably would have been punished. So everybody knew what was going to happen, Les. I, I don't, you know, like you didn't have to be a fortune teller to, to know that that was going to happen, you know. And so I wasn't shocked at all, to be honest. I think the the, the reaction to it and being called scum by by the likes of Piers Morgan was like. That's like, you know, like the pot calling the kettle black, like in it, you know, Piers Morgan calling anybody scum, you know. But um, I think people over overreacted to it. This city's got a history with the establishments in general. So I'm not really surprised. I'm not even embarrassed about it, to be honest. Pete? Yeah. I know, I know just a few people by me. I actually went into the ground. Uh, as they were kicking in, you know, as as the players come out of the tunnel, so I was there for it. But by the by the DFA saying in effect telling us we had to play the national anthem, you were just poking the hornet's nest. You were going to get a reaction come what may, and each time it was being it was being mentioned in the press pre kickoff, it was just going to add fuel to the fire. Um, but I did notice that by me and I presume all over the ground, quite a lot of people stayed into the underneath in the concourse and waited till the national anthem had been played and then they came in because I know a couple by me came in just as we were kicking off to be honest. Um I think if you know I mean I watched the Everton game at Brighton and Everton as well as booing it they actually drowned it out singing you know their own song the Everton song and I watched the stars of the Tramia game uh, against Northampton and there was quite a few boos. Um and I think if there's one if there's one type of people, shall I say, that you you know are gonna say they're too panicked, it's gonna be Merseyside people. They're not gonna they're not gonna succumb and they're not gonna kowtow to the FA or the government or anyone like that. 
And in the, in these times, we all know we you know we had Peter on from Nottingham the other week, and he he was saying um, you know the deprivation in their part of the world. Everyone thinks it's just Liverpool. It's it's nationwide. There's there's, there's people starving while they're swanning round in a in a bloody gold carriage with a, a, a funny hat on, and people aren't going to stand for it. I, I I said to Jim, I said to my wife when I got in, I said, you know what? If Prince Charles, as I said, look, I became king the day me, the minute that my mother died. That's how that's how it worked. Let's not have all this tomfoolery where we're parading around London in our finery and inviting it. Let's put that money, give it to the NHS, give it to the you know, give it to the food banks and stuff like that. And if he'd have done that, maybe people would have joined in with the national anthem. But they're not going to do it round here because they they've been kicked so often in the teeth that it was just it was just another it was just another kick for them. So whether you agree with it or not, uh, I mean, I I I just sat down while the national anthem was on. I didn't boo or I didn't do anything. I just, I'm just quite indifferent to it to be honest. So um, I didn't see anyone by me joining in. Some people just stood up and and kept the peace. And as I say, others um, stayed out in the concourse and waited till after it had finished. But they were on a hiding to nothing. Liverpool, I agree with Tom. If they'd have said no, they'd have been lambasted in the press anyway. So it is what it is. Yeah. I, for one, was on the cop. And I was I was one of the ones who booed. I was the ones who sang Liverpool throughout the, throughout the play of the national anthem. And for me, you know, they got everything they deserved. As you both said, the club were put in really an impossible position by the Premier League, you know, and the fans reacted, you know, in the way that that it was expected. You know, if people have sort of said, and you wonder why, you know, people slay, sing songs about Hillsborough. Well, we're not singing songs about a person who's died. You know, we're, we're, we're just saying we don't agree with with the monarchy and certainly not the, the fact in a cost of living crisis that you know, 250 million quid is being spent, you know, on a grand party for a, a, a guy who's worth 1.8 billion when there's people, you know, who are having to go to food backs, there's, there's kids in poverty and, you know, they're not being able to be fed properly. So, you know, power to power to everybody who, who showed the sense of the national anthem because, you know, as a, as a city, you know, and I'll, I'll include Everton fans in this for their reaction on Monday at Brighton as well, and Tranmere fans as well, you know, from the Merseyside area, we showed that we're compassionate people. And as I put on Twitter on on Saturday night, to, to the people who were criticising Liverpool fans for doing the national anthem, there was thousands of people today who, on the way to the match, donated stuff to food banks for people who can't afford to, you know, to buy food. And yet you've got you've got people criticising us when you know somebody has just had a party who's worth one point eight billion and we've paid two hundred and fifty million for us as taxpayers. So thoroughly thoroughly justified reaction as far as I'm concerned, and well done to all those people from Liverpool and the Merseyside area who actually took part and and showed the dissent and showed the support. For people rather than royalty. That's Let's what I've got to say on that. Yeah, Pete. I was gonna say just before you finish off on the subject, don't forget, I mean the press the press have, have battered Liverpool over this. 
But don't forget when the Queen died and they had a minute silence, that was observed at Anfield. But they do yeah. know how to, you know, they, they, it was done. It, it, it was done. It wasn't necessarily, it is against the monarchy because we don't, you know, most of us don't believe in it. But it's an anti-establishment thing. And the only way we can sometimes vent our spleen is if we play the national anthem. I know, I know in the uh, in the game against Man City, I think it might have been or the Chelsea final last year. I think Prince William was there, and once again they were booing the national anthem. And people I was speaking to afterwards up here, my boss and work for one. He said, "Why were they booing Prince William?" I said, "They weren't booing him personally. They were just booing the establishment." And I think that's where the press. The press just uses as an easy target and say, "Oh, some bloody scousers again!" You know what I mean? Show enough. And as I say, they pick on the wrong people from this area. If there's one thing we have got, it's a bit of guts, you know. Yeah, spot on there, Pete. It is against the establishment because, as I say, the establishment has screwed us now for well over thirty years. Back to the days where where Thatcher tried to mothball the city. So you know, it's a it's a much a standard against that as it is against the royal family. But anyway, Tom, we'll move on. And I'd just like to, you to give us your words of wisdom on our, on the guy who's been linked to us as a sporting director, George Schumacher. Well, I've never heard of him, Les. <laughs> <laughs> George, George Schumacher. I know nothing about him. But um, that's my words of wisdom. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> who is George Schmacher? Has he been linked? He was a goalie anyway. Well, yeah, so in his no. playing days, it was. Um, Are you sure you haven't pronounced that correctly? I, I wouldn't know. I wouldn't know how to. It's as close as I'm going to get. But the reason I asked you that, Tom, is because when he was linked, I think on on Sunday morning, um, as you say, none of us had ever heard of him. But all of a sudden, there were so many experts on Twitter who knew everything about him. So, <laughs> <laughs> so we just sort of throw that one in as a little bit of a careful yeah. to lighten the mood a little bit. Yeah, uh, George, George Schmacher, he might turn out to be quite good. You don't, do you know? Do you know what I'd be looking at if, if, if I was if I was looking at a at, at, at a club? I'd be looking at a club like Leipzig. I'd be looking at. A club like um, Ajax, I'd be looking at the sporting directors because they seem to have a fantastic system of, of bringing in young, talented players. Even you know, even Brighton, Les, at the conversation we were at the other week, you know, they seem to they, they seem to you know like be able to pick up players, don't they? they? Seem to have a good, as they say, knowledge of we. We've been spoiled, haven't we, by Michael Edwards? That's the that's the problem. The thing is, Tom, though, in all honesty, nobody did really hear the Michael Edwards. No, they hadn't. You know no. what I mean? And and nobody really had really heard of although he was part of the um you know the transfer committee, that was very, very sort of maligned by people. Oh, you know, the Blum and Transfer Committee have got this wrong. But Michael Edwards was part of that. And all of a sudden, you know, he gets he gets appointed as your sporting director, and again there was no fanfare when he got appointed, and yet you know he did a lot of a lot of very very good business for us. So it doesn't say because you you you've got a high profile name that you're going to be good, or 
because people have never heard of you, you're not going to be good. It's it's like everything else. It's just making the right appointments at the right time. I think mm. you've not heard of him, Pete. No, I've not heard of him at all. So I, mean, I have I have done a, a little look up on him. Oh, here we go. Here's, here's one of the Twitter experts now. Yeah, yeah, here we go. No, 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 no. <laughs> and the only management's the only management's experience he's had, whether that's count counts for anything, was back in 2007, and he was the caretaker manager at Arkham. Um, but as I say, he was a goalkeeper. Played plays at a good level. He played for Dusseldorf and Leverkusen and Mönchengladbach. As to as to how he is, I've heard he can be quite an abrasive character. So I don't know how that sits. Whether he's he's going to, I'm assuming he'll be an ally of Jurgen Klopp, fellow countryman, rather than against him. So it's going to be interesting. Um, I I I honestly don't understand a lot of this uh, director of football stuff. You know, to me, the manager wants a player, and the, you know, I think they look after the financial side as opposed to picking the the actual playing side. Um, I think that's what's happening now, Pete, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Jürgen Klopp is now saying that he's looking for the players that he wants, and and I think the owners are going to. I think if he comes up with a list of players that he wants, I'm sure that that's what's going to happen this time. I think we might. Yeah. It's going to be interesting, isn't it, to see who comes in as the sporting director, whether he gets the same sort of role as Michael Edwards once had, and we go back to data-driven based. You know, it, but I think this this is as you said the other day, Les. I think this summer is going to be one of the most interesting summers in the history of Liverpool Football Club because there's some massive decisions to be made this summer. You know, like, and I, I, I think we have to get it right this summer, you know, like, because I, 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 we can't have another season like this, you know. Well, they've already, they've already changed, haven't they, the, the plans for the um, for the pre-season. And Jürgen's come out today and said that they've even changed some of the coaching methods now and they've, they've started to implement them early rather mm. than waiting for the pre-season. And that was one of the reasons why they've decided to go and get Thiago operated on now. So he is fully fit for pre-season. And then we're, I think last year was a little bit of, well, you know, we can just get through this pre-season. And, and what happened, even if worst case scenario comes, you know, we'll still finish in top four. And I think they've had a bit of a, a wake-up call, to be honest. So I think, you know, to freshen things up, because you know, they're going to start, they're starting earlier as well in pre-season. They're back in on the 8th of July this year. And then the internationals are back on the 11th. And then they go to this two-week camp in Germany before they then they fly off, I think, and play some games in the Far East. Um, you know, And then I don't know what's going to happen after that week when they gear up to the season. But I do think that, I do think the training will be, will be sort of, you know, more, more sort of um, intense, but over a longer period of the time, and they won't play any games this time until they're, they're fully ready. But anyway, we'll we'll move on a little bit. I'll just ask, just ask the lads really after the after the weekend results, um, what do you think of our our chances of getting top four now? I'll go to you. Say, I think first on this one, Pete. 
Um, I'm always a glass half full, and I've still got a belief that we're going to do it. I mean, we've got to get nine points from our three games. <clears throat> I think Leicester's going to be a tough game because as bad as they were at Fulham, they're going to have to have some response to that result. So I think Leicester will be a tough game, but I think I was out of the two that we can catch. I, I'd expect United to get nine points. They've got four games left and three of them are at home. Um, and I, I'd expect Man United to possibly make it. It's Newcastle, I think we can reel in. You've got Leeds away at the weekend. And, I, and once again, Leeds are another team fighting for their lives. And I think I think under Sam Allardyce, they're going to be... I know City beat them 2-1, I think it was, at the weekend. But I believe there was a big... Uh, you know, they defended a lot better than they have been doing the last few weeks. I think they could frustrate Newcastle. Then Newcastle at a home to Brighton. And the Everton results actually helped us by Brighton uh, losing. So, you know, Brighton are probably going to go for it. And then the other two games Newcastle have got is Leicester at home. Yes, again, another team down, you know, down at the bottom. And then they finish off at Stamford Bridge. And although Chelsea can't do anything um, with regards to qualifying or, or, or anything else, they'll want to still want to set the season, you know, they want to finish the season off with a good at least a good um, performance for the incoming Pochettino. Um, so I think if we can reel anyone and it's going to be Newcastle out of the two, that's all be it that we've got to get the nine points though. Yeah, what do you think, Tom? I think I was having this conversation with one, with, with one of my boys at, at the, at the other day. Do you know what's funny, you know, Les? Uh, I, I think we've got a, a, a really good chance of, of winning of getting the top four place now. I think we're, do you know, while, while, while we fell behind and Manchester, Newcastle at one stage with the games in hand would have been 15 points ahead. And I think United would have been 15 points ahead and Newcastle would have been 12. And then we were miles out of it. We were gone. We didn't even talk about being in the equation. And I think mentally, I think Manchester United and Newcastle took their eye off the ball. They've thought, we've got we've got third and fourth place here. We're guaranteed Champions League football. They're that far behind. They're not going to catch us. And what's happened? It, it, it just shows as early in the season. You drop your game by 5%, 10%. It's very difficult to get that back. Do you know what I mean? And so now, now you're looking at like like Newcastle and Man United, and now there's there's a great doubt in there now. And like Liverpool have just come up on the rails to such an extent. What what you said before, Peter? I, I was reading the other day. If Manchester United lose one of the four games, then and we win the three, we go through. Because we've got a better goal difference. No, better they've got, better they've goal got, difference. They've got to lose two of them, Tom. Because no, if I they thought win, they've got to lose one. I thought if they got seven, if they get to seventy, if they get to, if we get to seventy-two and they get to seventy-two, we we can only get seventy-one. Seventy-one, sorry. Yeah. So how many points are they? They they yeah. need nine. Yeah, they need to win three of the four games. So they've got to. They've basically got to. No, yeah. 
So, so basically, I misread that. Yeah. Right. So if they lose a game, if they lose a game, then the pressure's real. Yeah. Yeah, but the, Newcastle only needs six points, don't they? Yeah. So I think it's six or seven they need. But like, I, I can see Manchester United getting beat. I really can. I can see Manchester United losing against uh, against Fulham of all the teams. I'm talking Bournemouth away can be quite tricky as well. Yeah. Mm. So I, I think I think we've got a good chance, you know, Les. I think, I think turning it back on, you know, turning your form back on is not as easy as taking your foot off the off the pedal. Yeah, I just think with the the two teams who we've got to try and catch it are both. We've got a chance for different reasons, really. With Man United, for me, I just wonder whether the legs have fell off, and they've also got their eyes on this FA Cup final against Manchester City. So you know, the and Ten Hag has played. A lot of the plays and a lot of the games probably earlier in the season that he didn't need to play them in. And I just wonder whether they're now getting a little bit heavy legged. And if they have a little bit of a setback, you know, I think they could, for example, draw a home with Wolves, say at the weekend. And if they drew a home with Wolves and then we beat Leeds, uh, Leicester, sorry, on Monday, then all of a sudden that's when the pressure is on them then because they then have got to go and win the final three games. Whereas if they draw one and we win our final two, then we would go above them. So, and with Newcastle, I think again, you know, Saturday is a big game. If they, if they lose at Leeds, then all of a sudden they could get the jitters because the Champions League is so close. A little bit like Liverpool did, if you remember in, in sort of the year in under Hurrier when we, we went to, Bradford, I think, last game of the season and yeah. got beat 1 0 when David Weatherall scored. And we were we were we were well favourites to get top top three, I think it was that back then. And um, you know, I think I think we had four or five games without scoring a goal towards the end of the season and missed out on the last game. And and as you say, so you don't know how pressure can be. And your mind can play funny, funny games with you. So, you know, I'm, I'm probably about, I'm probably about, think we've got about a 40, 45% chance of getting in the, in the top four, which is probably 40% more than I thought we had a few weeks ago. So let's hope that when we, when we do our podcast next week, you know, those, those percentage chances have gone up again. So, so yeah. So I've just, just a little bit of, Fun similar to what Pete does with with his double agents. I had a look um, because I had something in my head that the, the two teams have played a pivotal role really in both Liverpool winning trophies and I'm not quite getting across the line. And and because also, as has been mentioned here in this in this little chat we had about our top four chances, that um the, you know, the two teams are involved in many ways, you know, and the two teams concerned are Liverpool and Chelsea, eh, sorry, Leicester and Chelsea. So, and this started back really in 1965 when, when Leicester were, were renowned as Liverpool's bogey team and they'd knocked us out of the FA Cup, I think, the previous year. And Liverpool went away 
to Leicester in the sixth round after drawing at Anfield and won. Yeah. How's that that game, Les? Yeah. And Andy Lockhead, was he? Yeah, and then and then we, we went on to play Chelsea then in the semi-final. We beat Chelsea in the semi-final when uh, Willie Stebo scored from a pen and Peter Thompson scored. And then we went on to win the FA Cup yeah. after, after beating Leeds in the final. Then the following year, 1966, we, we, we played Chelsea at home in the last game of the season and picked up the, the league championship trophy. Then we go on then to 1973, which was the next time Liverpool won the league. And Liverpool then go into the last game of the season against Leicester, needing a point to win the league. We draw the game nil-nil. And you know, Shankly's new team wins the league for the for the first time under you know, for, for source of seven years. And his new team is born. 1974, we play Leicester in the FA Cup semi-final. Um, draw at Old Trafford and then beat them in the replay at Villa Park. We go on to win the FA Cup the following, uh, you know, in, in May against Newcastle. And then there's a gap then until 1986 when we'll all remember the night at Leicester where Liverpool go there and they beat Leicester 2-0 with goals from Ronnie Whelan and Ian Rush. And on the same night, Oxford beat Everton 1-0 and put Liverpool you know, in, ahead in the race for the league and it was in their own hands. And then on the Saturday, we go to Chelsea where we needed to get a result to win the league. And Kenny scored. And that was the first part of the double. And then, you know, we we go on then to, to sort of 2005. And then the Chelsea trilogy starts with the, with the Champions League semi-final when Luis Garcia, ghost goal, as Jose Mourinho called it, took us to Istanbul. And as they say there, the rest is history. Um, 2006, we then beat Chelsea in the FA Cup semi-final. Luis Garcia won the goal at Old Trafford. And we go on to win the the FA Cup in Cardiff by beating West Ham. 2007, we then played Chelsea again in the semi-final and beat them on penalties. And um, and then we go on to lose the final that year. 2008, we lose to Chelsea in the quarterfinals of the Champions League. 2009, we lose them in the semi-final. 2010, Chelsea win at Anfield to stop Man United winning the league. 2012, you know, we, lose, you know, we lose to Chelsea in the FA Cup final. Um, and then 2014, there was the game at Anfield that we'll never forget that, that broke our hearts under Brendan. And you know the, you know even even in two thousand, I think it was two thousand and nineteen. I think before we or two thousand and twenty four, we played Barcelona the night before. Leicester at Manchester City, and you know Vincent Company scores that wonder goal against them. You know to and if Leicester had got a point that night, we'd have won the league. So you know Leicester and Chelsea have played a pivotal role, really, in Liverpool sort of destiny, really. And I just hope they play a pivot role this season by by not Leicester taking points off us, but by by taking points maybe off off Newcastle and Chelsea getting points off off Man United and Newcastle before the end of the season. And just another couple just before they go. Don't forget when we won the league and you know when lockdown was in, it was Chelsea who beat Manchester City. 
for us to be crowned champions. We probably would have still won it anyway, but it was Chelsea on the night where all the lads were watching the game together in Forby. They got the result that night that meant Manchester City couldn't cast, catch us and we were confirmed as champions. And even last season, to be honest, if Liverpool Liverpool drew twice with Chelsea, we lost at Leicester when Mo um, missed that penalty. And if we'd have won either of those game, either of those three games, we'd have won the league. So it's really, it's really interesting how those two teams have played a pivotal role in in Liverpool's destiny. Really. So I just thought I'd give this little bit of useless information to everybody. Um, and I'm sure you all wouldn't have been able to sleep tonight if we had the sort of mention that. I don't sleep now, Les. We're playing less than that. But it's always, always been positive there as well when, we, when we've when we beat Leicester. Not all negatives. So no, it's a positive no, no. one this time. Right. So we'll move on now to, to discuss the game against Leicester. So from the team that played against Brentford, Tom, do you think there'll be any changes? Yeah, I think I, I thought Nunes would go out of the game against against um, Brentford, but I think he will. I think Gapco. I think we'll revert back to our, our more, you know, more of the, the side, like not the four of them playing together. I'd be surprised if he does that again. I think he'll go with three, probably Gapco or Gapco, um, Diaz and Salah probably as a front three. I think Jota and, and Nunes will be on the bench. I think midfield will probably will be the same. It'll either be it'll either be um, it'll be Henderson, Fabinho, Henderson, Fabinho, and Curtis probably more likely because he left out he left out Henderson for the last game. And I think the back four will probably be the same again. I'd be surprised if it's. If, if he makes many changes there. But you never know, he might bring Joel back for that game. Because he played yeah. really well away the, the last game. So I don't you you don't know it, Jürgen, but I think probably he'll he'll probably stick to more or less the solid side to try and win against Leicester. Pete. Yeah, I, I think like Tom said, I think the reverse to three up top. Um I think my front three to start at Leicester. If they're all obviously fit, it'd be Mo, Diaz, and uh, Jossard, I think. And that'd leave Cody, Gapo, and, and Nunes on the bench. But I think I'd start with them three. Um, midfield, I think, I think I'd go with what Tom said, Henderson of Fabino, with Curtis Jones in the middle. And at the back, I think it'll be the same, the same as as was. Um, Anything that worries me about Leicester, and it worries me every season we play them, we play such a high line. And if Vardy's playing, he's got so much grass to run into, he can really hurt us. Um, so I, I don't know. He might he might stick. I think Jurgen might stick with um, Ibu at the back along with Van Dyke. But I just pray that they don't push up too far. And if Madison can pick a pass, I think he's the one. If we can stop Madison playing. I think we can nullify Leicester, to be honest. Um, if you give him too much time on the ball, because he's not pacey, he's not he's not got blistering pace, but he can pick a pass out. Um, so I, I think we'll have to be careful if we play a high line, and I think I think Allison may have to be the sweeper keeper that night. He'll have to be on his on his toes if if Vardy starts the game because he 
he loves just to run into acres of green space and, and onto the through balls. But yeah, I think there'll be a, a couple of changes certainly from the Brentford game, yeah. For me, um, I think Henderson will come in for Gakpo in the midfield. But I think then Gakpo will start, I think Salah will start, and then it'll be a toss-up then between Jota and Diaz, who starts on the on the left for me. Um, but yeah, apart from that, I think the, the back four and the goalkeeper will, will be the same. And all I will say is I tend to agree with Peter a little bit, that we've just got to watch out for Vardy. Also, as you said, for, for Madison, who can pick out a pass. And also for, you know, if we're playing, you know, with Tep moving into midfield, we're going to have to watch for Harvey Barnes with his pace down, down the left, the left, which is our right. And if we can nullify that, then I think that we should be able to get a few goals again on, on Monday night. So we'll just ask you, before we move on to, to Pete's double agents, to give, give it a quick prediction for for the game on Monday. So I'll start with you, Tom. 3-1 to Liverpool, Les. OK, Pete? I said 4-1 against Brentford, so I was mild. I was, I'll go, hopefully, another clean sheet. I'll say 2-0 to the Reds. Yeah, that's where I'm looking, to be honest, Pete. I'm thinking of going on the side of 2-0. Um, I just think they'll keep the good run going. They've had a bit of a break, so you know they should go into this game fresh. So, yeah, I'm going to go for a a 2-0 win to Liverpool. So now we move on to the Paul Konchevsky show and listen to <laughs> listen to Pete's double agents. It was, I think I think in all the time both clubs have, have been in existence, there's nearly 30 double agents and some of them go way, way back. So I won't even mention them. I'll, I'll stick to the more recent ones. Strangely enough, the six goalkeepers who have played for both Leicester and Liverpool um, we obviously know um, Danny Ward, who's, I think, keeping the bench warm presently at, at Leicester. He's lost his place. But remember when we bought Peggy Arfexed from Leicester? Yeah. And uh, he made he made six appearances for us. He played 21 for Leicester. Uh, Hooperman. Hooperman went on loan from Liverpool to Leicester. And he played, Mike Hooper, he played 14 times for them. Chris Kirkland also went on loan. But it was well after he left Liverpool. He played for a couple of other teams after leaving us. And Alvin Martin's lad, although he didn't make a, an appearance for Liverpool, he was he was more in the back, you know, like understudy. He went on loan and he played 25 times at, at Leicester. And then Tony Warner, who we've mentioned in another edition, he uh, he went and played four games. And then going down the list of outfield players, we've got our old friend Stan, Stan Collymore who played just 11 times for Leicester, scored five goals. Uh, obviously, Emil Heskey is the standout one who came to, came to us and had a great a great career at Liverpool. He was a part of the uh, treble-winning squad. Kevin McDonald, who came from Leicester to us and he played in the cup final. Um, obviously, Gary Mack, the one and only Gary Mack. And then there's been a couple of peripheral ones, Jay Spearing, went down on loan and he played seven times. And David Speedy, later on after leaving us, he, he played at Leicester. Uh, and then a couple of names before I mention our favourites. Alan Waddle, who, who, made, who scored just one goal and you two lads were probably there at the day that he scored the one and only goal. And he came from Halifax to Liverpool. And I think Shanks must have thought 
it's worked for Kevin Keegan, so you know who knows. But you know he 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 used to like delving into the the lower divisions, and he got Alan Waddle from Halifax. But sadly, he played twenty two times in all for us, but he only got that one goal at Goodison, which proved to be the winner in the derby. And then I feel a bit like Bruce Forsyth on the Generation game because every week, instead of a cuddly toy, we have Paul Kanchewski. Coming into and he's on again. Would you believe he played? He actually played over a hundred games for Leicester. Um, so he 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 just keeps coming back like a cuddly toy, Paul Kanchevsky. There's a couple of names I'd like to mention quickly who could have been double agents, but because of circumstances, it never happened. One of them, Frank Worthington, yeah, who Liverpool tried to sign from Huddersfield. And I'd love to have seen how Shankly handled him because he was a maverick. I mean, he, you know, I, he actually got his move to Merseyside years later when he became player manager at Tramia. And there's some tales going around Birkenhead of what he used to get up to. So I'd love to have seen how Shankly would have handled him. But because of the Worthington transfer falling through, we actually went and got John Toshak. And later on in Tosh's career for Liverpool, he actually failed a medical at Leicester. Uh, after losing his place, I think, to Ray Kennedy, after Ray Kennedy came up in 74. And he was all for going to Leicester and he failed a medical and then he came back to Liverpool and he had a new lease of life, Tosh. I remember one of the headlines in the papers likening him to, I think the headline was something like, is it Toshak or is it Pele or something? I think it might have been after Hattrick at West Ham. He scored a Hattrick at West Ham. And he went on to have a you know, a few more years, and he finished in 1978, Tosh, uh, when again he failed another medical, but this time to Anderlecht, he was going to go over to Belgium, and I think that's when he decided to hang his boots up and go into management at, at Swansea. But yeah, there's a few names there, um, a couple of others who people may remember, Zach Whitbread, um, he only played in, in the minor cups for Liverpool, and another one we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, Lee Peltier, who made 40 appearances. So, once again, there's quite a few double agents to look at there for both Liverpool and Leicester. Well, once again, thanks for that, Pete. A few interesting names there and a few that probably some didn't know who were double agents. So, on that note, we end tonight's episode of the LFC Red Poets podcast. Once again, our thoughts are with the family and friends of Dan Kay tonight. And once again, always remember... Don't buy the sun, justice for the 97, and you'll never walk alone. I hope you join us next time.